Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about a Thai kaiju movie, or at least partially Thai. I think this is a Thai-Japanese co-production. Am I right about that, Rob? Yes, though it is. It's the the Thai aspects of it are, are definitely uh, Thai to the max. It's um, yeah. it filmed in Thailand, has Thai actors, and features the uh, really stars the Thai variation of the god Hanuman. Right. So this movie has a couple of different titles. I think the English translation of the Thai title is Hanuman versus Seven Ultramen. And then there's also an English translation of a Japanese title I've seen it uh, filed under, which is The Six Ultra Brothers versus The Monster Army, uh, which I like how the, the titles do not agree on the numbers of ultras. Yeah, and then it can also be sometimes confused because there's another film from the same year and the same directors that I think is a follow-up to this titled Hanuman and the Five Common Riders. Uh, so that's a different film, but similar premise. Okay, so this is not only our first Thai movie, this is also our first false versus film. False <laughs> versus because the title Hanuman versus the Seven Ultramen is entirely misleading. Hanuman never fights the Seven Ultramen. In fact, Hanuman in this movie is created by the Seven Ultramen, and they fight together against some bad demons that are released from the earth uh, by arrogant scientists who don't believe in the gods. Yeah, it's more like seven Ultramen enlist Hanuman yeah. or team up with Hanuman. Yeah. But my one sentence review, this movie is just a rush of endorphins. It, mm -hmm. it, it's it's so it's so good. Yeah, this is a oh, it's it's a very colorful film. I can't really stress that enough. Like you, when you think of a kaiju movie, mm -hmm. you, you there are certain things you expect. You expect cool, kind of practical, sometimes goofy monster costumes. Mm -hmm. This film has that. You expect model cities and structures blowing up and getting crushed. Definitely we have that. Oh, yeah. You often expect children playing a major part in it because ultimately these are films for kids. And yes, those are present as well. But there are these mythological sequences involving Hanuman and, and sometimes other deities. There are cosmic scenes that are in play. And as we'll describe some of these as we move along, but they are just so brilliant and, and psychedelic at times uh, that it's overpowering. I was actually going to point out that there are parts of this movie, in fact, I would say, uh, especially the first few minutes of the movie, uh, going from like the studio logo through the opening narration, that feature some film techniques that you don't usually expect to see in a big monster fight movie. And it mm -hmm. actually weirdly reminded me of the experimental films of Stan Brackage, like the dog star man sequence, which have a lot of things like extreme close-ups of weird textures and color manipulation, unusual manipulations of the film stock itself. It felt like, Techniques that felt more at home in the realm of, you know, mid-20th century experimental film, but here they are in, in, a, big, uh, in a big kaiju slam. Yeah, and it's, it's often invoked in a way that, especially in the space scenes, mm -hmm. it depicts a thoroughly mythological cosmos. You know, a yeah. cosmos that ultimately has more in common with, with, with uh, say, like, like, like 
Hindu astrology than mm-hmm. with uh, you know even you know nineteen seventies understandings of of what the cosmos actually consisted of. You know, one of the funny things we were talking about before we started recording is that I didn't quite realize that this movie, in terms of themes, was essentially going to be like one of those uh, Christian apologetics movies, like the God's Not Dead movies, except for like Hanuman, the Hindu hmm. deities here, and the Ultraman, where an arrogant scientist is is punished uh, for not necessarily punished, but an arrogant scientist does wrong and releases a bunch of demons and causes trouble basically because he doesn't believe in the gods. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a strong theme of that. Uh, there's some other, it's, it's, it's a film that's very forward with its, with its themes. Like, yeah, especially with some of the, the minor bad guys we'll get into. Like the ma- minor bad guys are just super, super bad. They're like tying ladies to railroad tracks bad. Yeah, they're, uh, but they're also – their major sin is that they don't respect the gods either. They right. don't respect the temples. They don't respect the Buddha. They they try to cut off a Buddha statue's head so they can sell it for money, and mm-hmm. they are they are mercilessly, brutally punished for this act. Well, actually, yes. they're, they're punished for that and for shooting a child in the face. So yes. uh, conventionally morally evil as well. Yeah, that's, and that's another thing that I would say about this film, why it's worth checking out, is that – it is uh, it is kind of surprisingly violent at times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like with the with the terrestrial violence involving the you know these criminals who are defacing the temples. But then also mm. when you get to the big kaiju battles, uh, these are some brutal beatdowns. There are like Mortal Kombat style fight fatalities that take place here that I don't recall really seeing in the likes of Gamera and Godzilla. You're absolutely right about that. And there's another way in which I thought this was different than many of the other uh, giant monster fight movies I've seen. This one had much more of an element of dance in it than I thought uh, any other one I've ever seen. So it's not just, you know, uh, people in giant monster costumes doing wrestling moves at each other. They spend a lot of time almost sort of dancing at one another. And there are other dance sequences in the movie, like a a large part of the early – third of the film is like children dancing and playing music to make it rain because part yeah. of the plot is that the earth is too hot. Yeah, you might find yourself watching this and thinking, well, how much of the dance sequence am I going to have to watch? And the answer is you will watch all of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it is an extended sequence. And and indeed, Hanuman, and uh, in a minute we'll explain Hanuman mm-hmm. uh, for everybody who's not familiar. The Hanuman as depicted here is not like some sort of like sci-fi twist on Hanuman for the most part. It is Hanuman as Hanuman is depicted in the art and culture of Thailand, both mm-hmm. in terms of visual depictions, but also performance depictions in traditional Thai dance. Yeah, that's right. So you get a lot of monkey dances in the movie. Yeah. Now, another thing I wanted to come back to is I, I was trying to think of examples of other false versus movies. I know there are some, I just couldn't call them to mind. I, I didn't know if you could think of any examples, but uh, the closest thing I actually came up with is, is a trash DVD that I like to watch. I think it's from the early 2000s. It's a movie called uh, Frost Portrait of a Vampire. It has Gary mm. Busey and a bit part in it. <laughs> but the funniest thing about it is actually that there is a character named Frost in the movie, but he is not a vampire. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't think of another film offhand where it's something versus something and they don't actually fight. Now, there are plenty of examples where the the versus matchup is about two good characters who will fight each other, but then ultimately team up against a greater evil. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a common a common trope. Yeah, of course. You know, King Kong versus Godzilla, and then actually they have to fight Mecha Godzilla or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, but in this, it's I don't, I don't yeah, Hanuman and the the Ultra team are are pretty square from the get go. Like they're 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 never in conflict with each other. Yeah, I don't even recall a minor disagreement. They are no. they're absolutely in lockstep side yep. by side the entire time. Fine tuned machine. Well, maybe we should hit that trailer audio. Yeah, let's let's hear a little bit of the trailer and 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 hopefully if this is the right clip, you'll hear some of the music in it because there's a fabulous. Hanuman theme song in this that uh, just is delightful, especially if you if you uh, enjoy uh, like Thai pop uh, uh, music of this era. Uh, really good stuff. <laughs> Oh, I don't know if we mentioned the year. We, we should say this movie is from what year is it? 1974? Is that 1974, right? yes. Oh, boy. That was a good year for, for Tai Kaiju. All right. So let's get into some of the connections here. Uh, normally we talk about, you know, the, the human connections of note, and we are going to get to the humans. But first, I want to talk about the god of note here, and that is Hanuman. Uh, born, if we can really put a date on this sort of thing, maybe 1500 BCE. Uh, but then again, Hanuman is a god, so it's kind of ridiculous to even throw that out there. <laughs> so yes, this movie f- heavily features Hanuman, and it's uh, it's it's not actually the the Hindu god Hanuman. It's actually a guy in a suit. <laughs> but uh, I always love this uh, this aspect of the film. Sci-fi comic book hero teams up with an actual god. And we're not talking Zeus or Poseidon. We're not talking Cthulhu or Gozer. We're talking about a mythological figure and deity that is hugely culturally and religiously important to one of the world's major religions. So Hanuman is a god that is, is still like very much in play. Mm-hmm. Now, Hanuman is a fascinating figure in Hindu mythology, and while nothing is certain, I believe some scholars believe that the Chinese figure of uh, Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, the great sage equal to heaven, may have at least partially emerged out of traditions of Hanuman uh, that that, uh, flowed out of India into China. But then again, Sun Wukong is very much a separate mythological entity as well. Now, is Sun Wukong, is this the, the figure who appears in, say, the novel Journey to the West and yes. is sometimes characterized as the handsome monkey king? Yes, yes. Uh, there, yeah, that, that, is, that is the monkey king, uh, uh, indeed. And it, they have some shared ca- characteristics, uh, but again, each one is very much their own character. Uh, so if there's, you know, it's, it's not so much one is the, the Chinese version and one is the, you know, the Indian or Thai version. It's like, like they, they're really separate entities at this point. So uh, in getting into the, the Hindu origins of Hanuman, uh, which then, of course, are become important in Thai culture as well. I was reading uh, a book uh, titled The Sacred Animals of India my, by Nanditha Krishna, and the author points out that the Sanskrit word for monkey is kapi. But in the Hindu epic, the Ramayana, in which Hanuman and his soldiers aid Rama in the rescue of Sita from the evil king Ravana, uh, the word copy is not used to describe Hanuman and his soldiers. Instead, they are described as the Venara, literally the forest men, the people of the forest. Oh, whoa. So is it, is it possible this is something more like a Bigfoot kind of creature that some, they have in mind? 
Um, I mean, I imagine there are some interpretations that may go in that direction, but oh, okay. th- there seem to be associations with monkeys as kind of totem animals mm-hmm. uh, for the Venara. So the interpretation that Krishna is making in this book is that perhaps the origins were like a like a, a people, a tribe of the forest, like a culture of the forest. Okay. And perhaps they had as their, their emblem the monkey, or perhaps they worshipped a deity that, was, that had that monkey characteristics, a deity that might even be sort of the, the proto-Hanuman. I see. But in later literary traditions, writers increasingly draw in uh, monkey descriptions for the Venara, uh, deliberate monkey characteristics. And so you see this transformation. Hanuman and his people become the monkeys uh, of, of the, the forest, like the noble monkey warriors of myth. And it's also only over time that the word Venara becomes a blanket term for primates in the real world as well. So chief among the Venara is Hanuman, loyal friend and devotee to Rama, uh, like he's just his loyalist supporter. Like I, I, in, in some interpretations, I think Hanuman gets his power out of his his uh, devotion to Rama. Like that's just how strong it is. There's the scene where he like, you know, he, he opens his heart and you see uh, uh, Rama inside his heart. Wow. So he's, he's also one of the ten incarnations of the Lord Vishnu. He's the son of the wind. He's the offspring of Anjana. He is fierce, immortal. He's unbeatable. But he also has a certain humanity to him. There's something about, about Hanuman that is relatable. Like he's, you know, he's bold, but he's, he's not stuck up. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot more to Hanuman. He's been a very popular figure in Hinduism for a very long time. And he's also vital in Thailand, where the Thai version of the Ramayana, the Ramakin, is one of Thailand's national epics derived from the, the Buddhist uh, Dasaratha Jataka. And if you visit the Grand Palace in Thailand, in, uh, uh, in Bangkok, you can mm-hmm. explore these beautiful murals depicting Hanuman's war against the demon armies, where Hanuman has this, he has this, this, uh, this you know, brilliant porcelain skin and this fierce face, and uh, yeah, battling these, uh, the, these demon armies with valor and magic. Now, in this movie, Hanuman does, in fact, battle a demon army. Did you notice anything from those uh, murals or artistic depictions coming through in the movie, uh, Hanuman versus the Seven Ultramen? No, not, I mean, not real, not to my eye anyway. It seemed like mm. the the monsters that are battled in this are very much more kaiju. Like the, okay. the only combatant that really has the, um, uh, the you know, the feel of of, of Thai cultural tradition about them is Hanuman himself, and mm-hmm. he's just steeped in it. He might as well be fighting Rodan or something. Right, yeah. Like, just, you know, for instance, there are scenes where Hanuman flies across the sky, mm-hmm. and he does so in this stylized pose uh, that, that is very much like the pose you see him taking in various uh, traditional artistic depictions. I noticed that, yeah, similar to uh, the, the style of flying you see often in, uh, in, say, Hindu art or Hindu iconography, where they're not flying in the Superman pose or not yeah. flying with arms out like they're like a bird or something, but uh, as if they're in sort of a levitating capsule. Yeah. So it's... It's, to me, it's, it's, it's interesting because on one hand, it seems like a perfect fit for Hanuman to pop up in a Thai children's movie to help superheroes battle giant monsters. But on the other hand, yeah, there's, there's nothing quite like, like it, nothing you can compare to it in Western traditions, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I was thinking, okay, well, sometimes we have tales about Santa Claus doing stuff, but you can't compare Santa to Hanuman. It's, it's, not, right. it's not at all the same. You know, Santa is a, 
a mythological folkloric character, but not one on the same level as like a, a like you wouldn't say Santa is like a cultural icon or cultural hero uh, of, of, for the most part, I think. Uh, and likewise, I can't think of another religious figure that you could imagine popping up in a film like this. I mean, I guess maybe the closest is is like Thor or something in the Marvel universe. Well, true. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, especially not for like religions that are still widely followed today have yeah. like huge, huge numbers of adherents. I, I know the there are people who have uh, done some sort of Norse religious revival, but uh, but like you, you wouldn't expect to see a movie where, say, Jesus is wrestle slamming robots. No, though, though, weirdly enough, you do see in some of the the um, exported uh, Santo movies, they sometimes call him Samson, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's uh, interesting. And they may do that with uh, with certain other uh, strongman films that came out of uh, out of uh, Italian traditions, I think, mm-hmm. where you just go to, oh, we'll just call him Samson, uh, referring to the, uh, the, the Samson of, um, of, of Jewish and Christian uh, traditions. But mm-hmm. then again, I'm not sure there's ever been an actual Samson film where Samson is taken out of the the biblical world and is, say, dropped in uh, New York City to battle monsters or something. I see some strange uh, symbolic parallels between El Santo and and Samson. They have a similar uh, thing where you you could take away their power by doing something to their head, Samson by cutting his hairs, El Mm -hmm. Santo by unmasking him. Yeah, and and actually it— Hanuman reminds me a little bit of Santo as we explored him in uh, in, in the, the the previous Santo movie we discussed. That Santo is so good that the the evil doers really don't stand a chance against him. Right, and see, and Hanuman is very much the same way. So in a weird way, Santo is about as close as I can come to imagining something like Hanuman in another movie. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, so who were the directors of this movie? Okay, we have a couple of directors. First, uh, there is uh, Sampote Sands, uh, director born 1941, famed Thai director who directed a string of really interesting-sounding films. Uh, There's some other clear Ultraman and Ultraman-esque stuff in there, but my attention was instantly grabbed by 1979's Crocodile, which is a giant croc movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Magic Lizard from 1985, which is, I think, a comedy or children's movie about a roller skating lizard that fights aliens in Bangkok. Ooh, sounds good. Yep, I saw a clip from it. Looks interesting. And then there's Fara Rot Mary from 1981, which is a, a film about ogres. Um, I was reading the synopsis, and it's it's it was 12 girls are abandoned by their parents because they are too poor to take care of them. The 12 daughters are rescued by an ogress in disguise who promises to take care of them as her own daughters. And yeah, and then it goes from there. So it seems very, you know, steeped in some sort of folkloric tradition and has like a very cool looking like Thai style ogress on the, the poster art that I saw. All right. All right. Then we also have um, uh, Shohei Tojo is one of the directors, um, largely a, uh, a special effects film director. He did a bunch of Ultraman stuff, but he also did some Sentai stuff, which was then adapted into Power Rangers in the United States. Okay, so this would be an example of what in in Japanese cinema is sometimes called a tokusatsu film, like a a special effects driven movie. Yeah, tokusatsu. So I guess you could say like to a certain extent, um, like who's a tokusatsu director in the American sense? Michael Bay? Yeah, Roland Emmerich or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, similar thing. (laughs) Guillermo del Toro, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So both of these directors gave us uh, this Hanuman movie, the subsequent Hanuman movie from the same year, uh, and they worked together on a film titled The Last Dinosaur that I'll get to here in just a bit. Okay. So that brings us to the writer, Bunzo uh, Wakatsuki, active from the late 1950s to the late 1980s. He wrote on a number of projects, including some that fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000 might be familiar with, uh, Star Wolf, Fugitive Alien, Fugitive Alien 2. Mm. Uh, these were uh, films that uh, arrived at MST3K via the Sandy Frank distribution system, okay. uh, which I think was headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, back in the day when it was around. Uh, but anyway, these films featured uh, a character named Captain Joe. He was the one with the ball cap on, mm-hmm. played by the legendary uh, Joe uh, Shashido, who lived 1933 through 2020. Uh, he was the star of the excellent 1967 assassin film Branded to Kill. All right. What about the cast? Well, uh, the cast is largely uh, – these are largely Thai actors. Uh, most of them are not people I'm really familiar with. Um, there is a, an actor by the name of Yodchai Mexuan who plays Dr. Wisut, uh, who is going to be our sort of our central villain in the piece. He, he seems like he was a Thai actor of possible note. I'm not familiar with him, but he has a, a number of, of films attributed to him on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Now, probably the most memorable human characters in this film are a couple of – I don't know how to describe them exactly. <laughs> they they really embody the monkey spirit of this movie, a couple of sort of physical comedians who spend a lot of the film sort of uh, dancing and jumping around in, in strange and obscene ways. Uh, and, and when we first meet them, they're wearing the most glorious jumpsuits. But these are – let's see. I'm trying to remember their characters' names. I've got them written down somewhere here. Well, yeah, their names are Shripok and uh, Shrisuya, I believe. Yeah, that's right. The, the version I had spelled it differently, but I think it's transliterating the same sounds. It's Sipok and Sisulia. Yeah, and on IMDb at least, which is especially given, um, you know, the, this is a Thai film from the 1970s, mm-hmm. I don't know, there might be something that is not, uh, the information might be uh, messed up in some way. But on IMDb, they are listed as playing themselves, hmm. which leads me to believe that maybe they were Thai comedians of note at the time, like they maybe they had an act, mm-hmm. uh, because like you say, they are very physical comedic performers, if not, I think clowns. Yeah. Might even, that might even be an accurate depiction of the sort of, of humor that they display. Oh, well, they're even wearing white face paint in some scenes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, they seem to be very much in the in a kind of the clown school tradition. They are enthusiastic performers. They're, they are, they're sort of a handful for the eyes. Yeah, they're, they are a lot. Uh, that yeah. is for sure. Uh, various other actors in this, uh, many of which you know do, do a fine job, but I'm just going to skip over them here because I don't know that they really have much uh, import uh, to the listener. But let's get to the special effects, because after all, this is a special effects movie. Uh, the special effects director on this was uh, Kazoa Sagawa. And Sagawa did Ultraman special effects throughout his career, but he also worked on a number of uh, films and TV shows you might have heard of. His first uh, credit was 1968's Mighty Jack TV show, a version of which, like a movie cut of it, was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the day. And while most of his credits are full Japanese productions, he also did effects on 1977's The Last Dinosaur, which was a Japanese-American co-production starring Richard Boone and Joan Van Ark, who was in Frogs. Oh, I remember her. Yeah. So there's our connection to a previous film. Um, The Last Dinosaur was also a co-production by Rankin and Bass. Wow. Wait, was it rotoscoped? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. 
but uh, another interesting uh, uh, credit uh, that uh, Sagawa has, uh, he worked on a, a TV series, uh, what was apparently a horror anthology t- TV series in Japan titled Horror Theater Unbalance. Uh, or I think it's sometimes translated as unbalanced horror theater uh, mm-hmm. from 1973. And I was I was trying to find out more about it. I, I couldn't find out much, but it looks really interesting. Uh, again, I'm, I'm generally interested in any kind of horror anthology, but a 1973 Japanese anthology TV series it sounds really rad. Yep, sign me up. And finally, the music, which I'm only mentioning because we tend to mention the music. Uh, Toru Fuyuki did the music on this. Uh, it's nothing really to write home about. It's it feels very old fashioned and very uh, you know sort of cliche adventure music. Uh, but this guy did a lot of Ultraman music, also Inframan from 1975, which starred Danny Lee, who was in the Oily Maniac. Well, are you ready to get into the plot? Let's get into the plot of this movie. Okay, now we start off with a, once again, a beautiful film studio logo. I I have to say, I've noticed many times since we started doing Weird House Cinema that I really love a lot of Asian film studio logos. I love the Shaw Brothers logo. I love the Toho logo, of course. And I would say the, the Chayo film studio here joins the list because it's just got these Two heavenly beasts, these kind of, uh, you know, uh, like uh, dragon tiger type creatures cradling the studio name in a disc between their paws while a kaleidoscopic supernova just roars behind them. It is really gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's quite beautiful and eye-catching and flows nicely into the rest of the film because it's it's not like we cut from this to just a city street or anything. Like we're right into the uh into the the the, the blinding, uh, you know, astrological world of the mythic cosmos. Yeah, the very first thing you see is the sun. You're just right up in the sun's business, like you're, you know, you're you, you can smell the sun's breath. Mhm. And I also have to say a caveat on all that follows. I can only judge the text content of this film based on the English subtitles that I encountered, which were uh, maybe not professionally produced. I'm not sure. So, uh, so of course, the quality of a film translation can vary a lot. And any awkward qualities of the narration or dialogue uh, that I'm about to mention may well be a result of the translation and not the film itself. Yeah, yeah, same here. I, I think we used the same um, stream of this that had the, uh, the, the the imperfect subtitles, but it was still an improvement over the original way I watched this film, which was on a Thai DVD that I bought off of eBay, mm-hmm. uh, which had no subtitles, and I just had kind of had to figure it out. And you can figure uh, out most of this film by watching it. Yeah. It's not not too deep, but there were a few things that I just I had no idea how they were supposed to have happened, and we'll get to those here in a bit. So the very beginning, I, I wonder if you have some insights into, you might have some have some astrological knowledge that I don't. But uh, the opening narration, it's showing us uh, the sun and space and planets. And it says, in our universe, there is the Milky Way, the galaxy where our solar system is. Encircling the sun, nine planets were born. Wednesday, Mercury. Friday, Venus. Earth. Tuesday, Mars. Saturday, Saturn, Thursday, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. <laughs> do, do you know what's going on there with the days? Maybe something's lost in translation. I think it's perhaps a connection to um, to, to Hindu astrology. Yeah, okay, and, okay. Uh, and, and, and 
the earlier associations of the of the planets. Yeah. Okay. Or like days of the week on which these planets were created. Maybe I was wondering, but I'm going to go with yours. And then next it tells us three million light years away, there is the ultra galaxy. Uh, now, brief astronomy note here. I was like, wait a minute, what, what could that be referring to? So the distance from our galaxy to the next nearest galaxy, which is the Andromeda galaxy, is about 2.5 million light years away. So that's, you know, pretty cl- ballpark of 3 million light years away. Mm-hmm. Um, but the funny thing about that is it won't always be that far away. While most galaxies in the universe are moving farther and farther away from each other as the universe expands, the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxies are actually on a collision course. They will probably slam into each other, or at least pass nearby one another within four to five billion years. So if the ultra galaxy is indeed the Andromeda galaxy, then, uh, then you know, maybe maybe we'll get more Ultraman movies uh, a few billion years from now as, yeah. they, as they get, uh, I don't know, closer. And that reduces the required budget for recruiting them. But anyway, the narration then tells us that there are 69 planets which circle around something called M78. Now, at first I was like, is that supposed to refer to Messier 78, which is sometimes called M78? Uh, I think it's probably not because this, it turns out, is a planet and Messier 78 is a hazy nebula within the Milky Way that's about uh, 1600 light years away. So we learned from the narration that M78 is a planet full of light and happiness and, quote, there were born the ultras. They have extraordinary powers and are extremely intelligent. They guarantee the peace of the galaxies. And the ultras are, of course, this is Ultraman and his kin. Yes, uh, his mother and his brothers. Uh, and as uh, and then while we're being told this, we're getting a, a pan over the surface of M78, but it looks like a wall on the satellite of love. It's just a mm-hmm. big old mess of bike reflectors glinting in the stage lights and greebles on the loose. Uh, yeah, a lot of greebles. Yeah, very good greebles. It's also really funny uh, because as we're being told that uh, they guarantee the peace of the galaxies, we see a close up on one of the Ultraman masks, which don't necessarily look benign. They look somewhat evil with orange eyes. And we hear a sound that is kind of like rats shrieking in the darkness. <laughs> it's not the most uh, piece of the galaxy sound, uh, you know, audio visual combination you could imagine. Well, I mean, I guess it's a tough job at times. I mean, clearly yeah. it involves combating monsters half the time. Uh-huh. But then we get more facts delivered by the narration. So uh, t- talking about M78, we learn that peace is eternal there. That's good. Mm-hmm. We also learn that Ultraman Taro watches over the 300 cities that uh, in the cities without sunlight, warmth is provided by 900 heaters. <laughs> I found these numbers very funny. Um, then we also learn that Ultraman Taro teaches the Ultra Brothers how to fight, that Ultraman Zafi leads his brothers, helped by their mother. Mm. And then we meet Mother Ultra, and Mother Ultra is awesome. She is just a, a, a grand slam. I love her costume. I love her movements. She's got this big red cape that opens like bat wings. She holds it open, kind of like, like the master in Manos, the Hands of Fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see her framed by an aurora when we first meet her. She's just awesome. Yeah, they have, even though, again, we have... We have sci-fi, like superhero robot people, um, you know, colliding with with actual gods mm-hmm. here. The, uh, the 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 Ultramen, the Ultra uh, folk here, they 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 do have a mythic quality to the way they're presented that ultimately makes things feel like they fit together. 
I it agree. It feels cohesive. Yeah. 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 And this comes back to, you know, something we've talked about on the podcast uh, before on, on our core episodes, which is that I'm not sure the distinction between gods and aliens is something that would have been quite so well distinct to say ancient people mm -hmm. uh, as it is to us, because I think the main distinction that we make in the modern world between gods and aliens is uh, whether you're talking about something that is natural or something that is supernatural. And I don't, I don't think the natural versus supernatural categories held as firmly in the ancient world where, you know, to many ancient peoples, the gods would be not necessarily supernatural, but something that's defined by sort of being of another place, maybe a place above in the stars or, a, or a kind of pure land or something. And then also being extremely powerful or being immortal. And so if you were, say, an alien from another planet who had amazingly powerful technology, that I mean, that, that seems basically almost the same as being a god. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then we get an origin. So then we cut straight from the ultras to an origin story for Hanuman. This all just sort of blends together. It's as mm -hmm. if it's all part of the same epic cycle. Yeah, so you and go, has always been. <laughs> yeah, so you go so straight from the epic uh, origins of the ultras, we go to narration that 10,000 years ago, King Panalay was reigning in India. And you see natural disasters. There's wind and black clouds blowing rocks over the ground and tree limbs snapping in the wind, water swirling. And the narration tells us that it was under his reign that Hanuman was born from Anjana, pregnant from the god of the wind. And we see her uh, dressed in a splendorous outfit and a red sky background. And there's wind being generated by the wind god, and she just vacuums it up into her mouth. Yeah. And this, by the way, is why Hanuman can fly, because uh, you know, he is the offspring uh, in part of the wind. Yeah, and then there's there's a very psychedelic birth sequence for Hanuman. Mm -hmm. She, he's like, I don't know. Again, it's very uh, experimental film. It has these dog star man like textures, and uh, and Hanuman flies out of the out of the uh, ether toward the camera with a fist extended. Mm -hmm. Then I guess that's all, all. Okay, dust off the hands. Background is done. Time to roll the credits. Over which plays an original theme song about Hanuman, which is, it, I, I love it. I love it. it. It's like Green Slime time. You know, Green Slime. Uh, every sci-fi fantasy movie should get its own original theme song with lyrics about the plot. Yeah, and this is a great song. I think we probably heard part of it in the the trailer audio earlier. It just it, it has. Uh, it, you know, even even though uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I don't speak Thai. The Thai language has this wonderful cadence to it, mm -hmm. which uh, which works perfectly in songs like this. Let's get another clip of that. <laughs> Okay, I want to cite some lyrics of this song. Again, this is according to the translation that I had access to. So this is the best I could do. It says that Hanuman is invincible, armed with his incandescent trident. I don't know if I remember a trident. Oh, well, he's got his slicing weapon at the yeah, end. Yeah, it, it looks okay, kind of like a sai, yeah. what we might think of as a sai in That's Japanese right. uh, traditions. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I buy it now. Um, we learn that he is immortal. He is the master of the wind. Against five monsters he fights, aided by the seven ultras, before a fight he prays, that's why he is invincible. Uh, and then uh, finally, the lyrics say, Hanuman and seven ultramen, watch this great movie. 
<laughs> yes. Um, there, there are, there are some, I don't know how much of it is the translation, mm-hmm. uh, but th- this would be a couple of, one of a couple of places in the movie where they seem to be breaking the fourth wall. Like there's a part where the narration's like, hey, this is our protagonist. Oh, yeah, yeah. That happens. In fact, that happens almost immediately. We meet a, a boy named Ko who is at a, a ruined temple with many other children and they're praying and dancing and playing music in order to get the gods to make it rain because the earth is very hot at the beginning of the movie. Like the sun is too close to the earth and uh, it's very dry and very hot and they need rain to cool the earth off. So they're doing these rituals. And uh, and when we very first meet Ko, he's dancing around in a Hanuman mask and the narration just says, this is the protagonist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but actually, before we meet Ko, we, the first human characters we meet are the clowns we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. We see two dudes who are they're off-roading in a truck or a Jeep or something that is spewing these wonderful pink fumes. And they are wearing really good jumpsuits. They're kind of Mario, Super Mario Brother colors. They're red and blue with white stripes. And, uh, and their truck breaks down. They're having car trouble. And that turns into a bunch of hijinks and tumbling around. Uh, and after they fail to get their car started and it spews a bunch of smoke all over the place, they run away from it and the car explodes. And then they laugh and they dance. And I don't know if this is correct, but in the version I was watching, there's a subtitle annotation telling us that they are dancing like Hanuman in order to receive better luck. Though I don't know what their luck could be now that their car has exploded. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure either. But man, they are. Yeah, they are. They are clowning hard in this in this scene and in all subsequent scenes. Yes. Uh, and so we, we get more about how hot the sun is, like they witness birds falling out of the sky on fire and smoking because the, the sun is so hot. Um, and so the, the two clown characters here, they run around chattering and, and uh, they're, they're doing like monkey-like dances uh, and talking about how hot they are and how they need water. And I, I think the implication is that their car exploded because it was so hot outside. Yes, I think so. Eventually, the two clown guys shed their their awesome jumpsuits, which is which is sad. But they uh, they shed them because they see a river that they want to swim in to cool off. So they take off the jumpsuits, run and jump in the water. They're wearing like one piece bathing suits under their jumpsuits. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting choice. Uh, but then while they're enjoying the water, they explain that. Uh, that that someone named Doctor Weesuit has invented a way to make it rain, and so everything's going to be okay. And the narrator tells us that these two guys are in fact famous pilots. Uh, yeah, and uh, they they do some some really good camera mooning and and such. But we learn more about Dr. Wiesut's plan that uh, he's going to shoot some rockets into the sky that are going to make it rain and cool off the world. And so we go to Dr. Wiesut's lab to learn about his plan. Uh, his lab set is really awesome. It's part sort of green slime type set, you know, mm-hmm. so standard sci-fi rivets everywhere. But also it's part dangerous 1970s playground with metal equipment, which is my favorite kind of playground. Yeah, it's really splendid to behold. Like the background really should have a rusty swing set and uh, you know, a <laughs> slide that just has blood all over it. it you know, it's like a lawsuit factory playground. Uh, but there's an argument between Dr. Wiesut and another character, somebody else who works in the lab named Melissa, 
about whether they need to ask the angels for rain in addition to their rocket plan. Melissa's like, hey, you know, I think we should appeal to the gods. That would be a good idea. And Dr. Wisut is like, no, it is foolish to believe in the gods. Hanuman does not exist, and I will not ask him for rain yep. uh, because I am arrogant. So we some some very heavy-handed science versus religion stuff. Yeah. And then meanwhile, back at the temple where the children are dancing and praying for rain, uh, of course, all the dancing goes on, but some bad guys show up. There are these ruthless thieves who appear in a jeep and want to steal a precious idol from the temple complex. Uh, so they run up to a statue of the Buddha and start chopping its head off, saying, soon we will be rich. Yeah, and this is yeah, this is just super low. Like this is highly frowned upon. Uh, I mean, mm. we don't you don't even need to be told that. Obviously, they're they're messing around with with, with on sacred grounds. But yeah, to, to rip the head off of a, a statue like this on, on, on temple grounds, just the lowest of the low. And our hero instantly realizes this. Yeah, he sees what they're doing. He catches the thieves in the act, and Co tries to stop them. Uh, they fight him off. In fact, this goes. There's a long sequence of him chasing the thieves around and them like kicking. Him him to the ground and every, mm -hmm. he's really insistent he keeps getting back up that's perseverance uh you know he's gonna fight for that buddha head and eventually the robbers they have enough of ko and they just straight up shoot him in the face yeah like three shots and then i mean it's not too graphic it is a little surprising uh yeah. when i watched it for the first time i'm like oh my god that just happened but you know to be clear it's just like Three gun gunshots, and then suddenly he has red paint smeared on his face, and he's dead. Yeah. So the it, the way it actually looks in the movie is is kind of benign and comical, but conceptually, yes, they shoot a child in the face. That mm -hmm. that is what kicks off the rest of the plot. Uh, so Ko is dead. He's lying there dead in the road as the robbers escape with their booty. And the children, they come to see their friend. He's been killed, and they they start to hold a funeral for him. And then meanwhile, on planet M78, the mother of Ultra gathers her six sons and, ooh, it is bad news for those thieves because the Ultras saw what you did. Yep. They, so they reason about this. Here's how it goes. Ko was good. Thieves are bad. So they deem this instance of shooting a person in the face unfair. <laughs> And then we learn that the mother of Ultra transports Ko's body to the planet M78. And then, quote, the Ultras merge his body with Hanuman, so Ko will be able to return to Earth as an Avenger. Okay, so on one hand, I, I'm not entirely sure why Earth is under the jurisdiction of M78. Right. Uh, but, but fair enough. Uh, the other thing, like, so this whole bit about how the boy Ko becomes... Hanuman, or to what extent he becomes Hanuman, I was always unclear about this, watching it without any translations. Mm -hmm. I'm still unclear unclear about it with the translation. So I guess it's like, because Hanuman exists. Hanuman has a reality right. that pre-exists. Uh -huh. And yet, somehow they are stepping in and allowing Hanuman to return to Earth by fusing him with Ko's body. So there's some sort of, the, the metaphysics on it are a little, a little foggy is what I'm saying. Well, at one point, one of Ko's friends uh, explains the situation by saying Ko is dead, but he became Hanuman. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure. So it, I, I don't know to what extent he's still Ko, but to some extent he is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the, the form that uh, the Mother of Ultra's intervention takes here is that a giant hand reaches out of the sky at Ko's funeral, 
picks him up, takes his body to the altar of the Ultraman, turns him into Hanuman, and then we see Hanuman flying over cities in Thailand in that iconic pose, you know, so mm-hmm. upright, uh, sort of posed with the arms in the air, uh, just zooming around over landmarks. Yeah, like I think the ruins are in Ayutthaya, and then then we see Hanuman flying over what I believe is Bangkok, mm-hmm. and I think he even flies over that uh, the royal palace uh, that yeah. I was mentioning earlier that has the fabulous murals. I think that's one of the the locations you see him uh, fly over. And there were like reports, there are sightings of Hanuman flying around because in Doctor Wizut's lab. Melissa receives the reports. She's like, hey, they're, they're saying Hanuman was sighted flying through the sky. And Wisut is smug and dismissive. And he's like, Hanuman does not exist. That is foolishness. I only need science. <laughs> and then we get a bunch more lore that uh, I really enjoyed. It feels mostly superfluous to the rest of the film, but we, we get uh, the, the legend of Fra Ram and his brother Fra Lok. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, Fra Lok, we find out, fought against the demon Thotsakon, and he was wounded by a lance. And because a wise man had said that uh, only the, the sap of the flower Sangkon, which was found on the mountain of Sapaya, could heal Frolok, Hanuman had to go looking for this flower. But he is warned by the sage that the flower must be plucked before sunrise. And so in order to get it before sunrise, he has to slow down the sun's cart. So there's some drama with the sun cart driver. We see mm-hmm. Hanuman uh, going up to the guy who basically, you know, like the sun, uh, the, the, the driver of the sun. And the sun agrees to slow down because Frolok is a saint who must fight a demon to maintain the universe. And then there's a, a long scene where Hanuman chases the flower around the mountain. They seem to kind of be flirting with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sequence is very good, and it has more of that psychedelic imagery. Uh, ultimately, Hanuman wins this chase by tying up the mountain with his tail, and he gets the flower. Yeah, it, this whole sequence is just like a, a marvelous fever dream. Mm-hmm. But to your point, I'm not exactly sure why it was necessary. It's nice. It's it's, yeah. it's great. And it's about our main character, Hanuman. But um, I, I don't know if it was super necessary for what is a rather long movie about <laughs> gods and kaiju. Oh, I'm not complaining. I will take this sequence. I want it left in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, this, it's good. Don't streamline it for me. Anyway, so Ko, after this, returns to stop the thieves. The thieves are they're in their car with their the, the stolen Buddha head. And they're like, ha-ha, we're going to get some money for this. We're going to sell it for our crime. And then mm-hmm. they're driving along the road. And then suddenly, standing in the road, in fact, dancing, is Ko, the boy Ko, who mm-hmm. they shot in the face. And they're like, what is this? Is this a ghost? You know, they start freaking out, and they, they shoot at him. They empty their guns into him to no effect. And then Ko goes into Hanuman mode. He changes into Hanuman form and becomes gigantic and just brutally murders the three thieves, uh, brutally murders yep. them with a preference for gory, crushing deaths. Uh, like one of them, he stomps on one of them. He knocks over a tree on and that guy gets crushed and is all bloody. And then the last guy he grabs and, and crushes in his hand like a can. That one I love because he's also kind of nodding while he does it as if he's acknowledging mm-hmm. us, the viewer, and saying, yep, yep, I'm crushing him in my hand. Like there's kind of like a, a monkey zeal to the vengeance. Yes. And there, there's also this maniacal – like Hanuman talks. 
You know, he said, like, while he's chasing them around, we get uh, at least the subtitles I saw were, haha, you're all going to die. You cut Buddha's head. <laughs> and after the three thieves are crushed, the Buddha head magically returns to the statue where it began. Uh, so next, uh, now that he's sated his thirst for bloody revenge, Hanuman has to fix the sun, right? He's he's going to protect Earth. So he mm-hmm. flies up to the sun, and much like earlier, so I guess the, here's one way it connects. You know, Previously, he has talked the sun into slowing down. Now he flies up, and he tells the sun, he's like, you're too close to Earth. Your flames are too strong. You need to back up. And the sun says, okay. And (laughs) the problem is solved. Hanuman uh, convinces the sun to back off and seems like things should be okay now. The movie should be over. It's only been about 40 minutes, so something's got to happen. And in comes the evil atheistic science to step in and and ruin things. So Dr. Wiesut and his rocket plan – to cause rain, uh, th- this leads to a fiasco. There's a long sequence in the middle of the movie here where rockets start malfunctioning and blowing everything up. And whoops, the explosions of the godless science rockets open up cracks in the earth and release ancient demons. And now you know what the rest of the movie is going to be. A good old-fashioned kaiju meat slam. Uh, some some foam costume suplexes and Frankensteiners and and here it's just basically monster action for the rest of the movie. Yeah, and it's pre- it's pretty great. Like I say, yeah. you, you you might come into a film like this thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm a Godzilla fan, I'm a Gamera fan, and and maybe you hide the, hold those particular films in in high regard. But this is some some fabulous monster wailing. Yeah, there and there are a lot of monsters. Five of them wake up and they're mm-hmm. running all over the place. They're dancing in the rocket fields. That's a, a great but the, again, it's very dance oriented kind of fighting. Yeah. They're almost there are parts where it looks kind of like the, the demons are doing the Dougie. And uh so there there's first the classic human forces versus the giant monsters that doesn't go so well for the humans. They send in the air force and the monsters breathe fi- jets of fire on the airplanes and wreck them and so forth. And then we get another phase of the movie that is Hanuman to the rescue, Hanuman versus demons. At first Hanuman is doing pretty well, but then all the demons gang up on him and he starts getting whipped and they paralyze him inside a crystal laser ball and then there's there's a big third phase of the fight where the Ultramen show up and then the Ultramen join on Hanuman's side. The tides turn yet again. We get a classic destroy all monsters uh, command. And uh, Rob, I was wondering if is there a term for this in professional wrestling where like, you know, the fights between this guy and that guy and it's not going so well for the likable character, but then another one runs into the rescue. Um, I mean, it's a run in is the, the terminology for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So basically this would be, this would be a, you know, a run in where, um, Hanuman is, is getting handled again. It's five to one. Yeah. And, uh, but now it's, it's soon going to be, uh, what, eight to five. And one of the things that's very noticeable is that either side, either the monsters or ultra, the Ultraman and, and Hanuman, neither side is afraid to use the numbers game to their advantage. Oh, like yeah. It, yeah. yeah. They're not going to insist on, on – neither side is going to insist on fair uh, numbers and fair fights. If it's like four to one, it's going to be a four to one wailing. 
Yeah, to use the wrestling terminology, and pardon my French, but there there are several cans of whoop ass that are opened. Yes, uh, the the they so the monsters gang up on Hanuman, and they're all just like pushing him around. It looks very they're bullying him, and that makes sense. They're demons. They're from the earth. Mm-hmm. They're bad monsters. But then the same thing happens when the Ultramen show up. The Ultramen, you really start kind of feeling bad for the monsters the way they gang up on them, and then there is a really beautiful final slicing action on the last big monster at the end that I, I just loved. Yeah, uh, yeah, this is the one where they where they cut him in half and then he explodes. He is cloven and then he, he explodes. Oh, and they rip the skin off of another one. Yeah. That, that's another one where they, 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 again, this is, it's very, in a way, grotesque. And to, this, to a certain extent, you do almost feel for the monsters because like, oh man, these demons woke up because of an explosion. They woke up out of Earth and they just thought mm. they were going to get to wail on the world. Uh, Turns out they were in for a very bad day. But it's a good day for the audience. I mean, I, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, so so I think that that does it for me. That's Hanuman versus Seven Ultraman. Yeah, I would say, you know, there we could go into more detail describing the the last 30 minutes of the film, but basically a lot of the expected things from the genre occur. You know, various mm-hmm. humans are observing the battle right. uh, and reacting to the battle in different ways. Yeah, more uh, that clown sort of behavior. Thing. More clown behavior. The you know the the scientist villain is observing and learning his lesson, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we have some goodbyes said at the end. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the stuff that really stands out those those psychedelic and mythological sequences, the the final fight, and also I think it's just neat to see. Um, you know, especially the ruins, uh, uh, the, the Thai ruins uh, in oh, the yeah. background there. It just adds to the flavor of the film. Yeah, I I really appreciated the ruins in setting up the fights as well. I thought I thought that was good. Yeah, it, it's maybe this is the closest thing we'll ever get to see to like you know a, a kaiju fight at Angkor Wat. Yeah, so it's yeah ultimately just uh, this one's just packed full of of, of wonderful weirdness. Uh, I love it, and I understand it was it was it was something of a hit at the time and really helped to cement the Ultraman as being like a franchise in Thailand, you know, because the, the Ultraman, I think, ultimately were, were sort of a Japanese import. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this made, the, made them, you know, authentically tied to a large degree. Do you know if the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers were inspired by the Ultraman? Because I see some similarities in the costumes and all that. I, I mean, I would imagine so, mm-hmm. given that you know, some of the same people were involved in mm-hmm. the creation of the show that became the Power Rangers. Oh, I don't, I don't think I don't know really anything about the history of the Power Rangers. Was that yeah, a Japanese like, show first? Yes, Japanese show Super Sendai, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and some of the people involved in this film were involved in that. Um, uh, but basically, you you just stripped out the the human aspects of that and replaced them with that with Western actors, and you have the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I see. You might not have been in the right age group, but when you were a kid, did you ever have the flute that would play the Green Ranger song? I did not. I, I remember Power Rangers. I wasn't I was not too old to enjoy Power Rangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember having it on and watching some of it and liking the bad guys. Yeah. Um, but I never had any merchandise from it. I think maybe I played one of the video games at some point. I remember really liking the monsters, but also uh, noticing even as a child that the structure of the episodes was somewhat repetitive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Though I guess you could say that about the kaiju movies that I love today. In fact, many of the genre movies I love today, which are basically structurally identical. And it's just, you know, whatever fur you're going to rub in between those uh, those checkpoints in the plot. Yeah, and but especially if it's a TV series and every episode needs to essentially have a big monster battle at the end. Yeah. You know, they're all going to have sort of similar beats for sure. 
So really, it's all about the fur. What does the fur feel like? <laughs> Insert from the future. I don't, I don't know if we can run some kind of uh, Weird House-specific siren there. Uh, so, so here we're coming back at you. This was not originally part of the episode we recorded. But after we wrapped up our, uh, our, our, our wonderful journey with Hanuman and, and the Ultraman, uh, we, we, Rob, you were kind of thinking about it and you were like, you know what? We should talk more about some of the specific kaiju beatdown executions toward the end of the film. So here, here's our makeup test. That's right. Because, you know, we like to dwell on what really works in a, in a film. Uh-huh. And certainly Hanuman's brutal executions of kaiju, that's what it's all about here. So I, uh-huh. I can't, we can't just let this go by. Uh, we've got to get into the, the grisly details. Okay, let's hear it. All right, so one of the kaiju is just kind of electrocuted slash exploded, nothing fancy. Um, uh-huh. But in a way, it's perfect because especially if you're used to less gory treatment of your kaiju enemies in uh, cinema, it, this seems like, oh, well, this is just what's going to happen. You know, there's going to be some rubber suit wrestling and there's going to be some mild exploding or electrocution. Uh, the rest of the kills are a lot more gory. Yeah, there, there's a lot of slicing and use of blades, which I, I have not come to expect in, in Kaiju Meets Lambs. Right. So for two of the sort of nondescript kaiju, and I think they all have names in this. I've seen like breakdowns where they each have a name, but I don't know what these two are called. Hanuman uses his trident to fling chakram discs of pure light at them, which cut off their arms and decapitate them both simultaneously. So then their bodies run around with bloody stumps uh, uh, where their arms and head once were. They run around, they bump into each other comically for a few seconds, and then they just kind of lean against each other. Uh, again, headless and armless, and then they explode. Yeah, it's kind of a, a hyper-bloody Three Stooges bit. Yeah. And then there's this this other kaiju. So we're working our way up the chain. There's okay. this, this neat one that kind of has what I think of as kind of like a derpy head. Do you remember this guy? Yeah, I think so, yeah. He's definitely more of a fighter. He's really put in the boots to one of the ultras when Hanuman jumps in, gets the hot tag. And so he stabs this kaiju uh, in the heart with the trident. And then while the, uh, while, the other, while the ultra holds him, Hanuman puts the monster in a headlock and then pulls the flesh off of the kaiju's head, leaving only a perfectly white skull setting atop his body. Very, very strong. Why do we never see the skin head ripping uh, move in the in real wrestling? I mean, like if Rowdy Roddy Piper had had peeled the had like degloved a head, that would be a popular finishing move. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's hard. I mean, the closest thing, of course, is unmasking of a luchador. But in that, you have the reverse, oh. where their mask is a skull, their face is just a human face. You're mm-hmm. you're 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 stealing, uh, you know, the divine or the macabre from. Uh, the normal human. Uh, But in this case, yeah, you're just ripping the skin off a monster's skull. Uh, But they're not done with this guy yet. Hanuman and the Ultra, they go ahead and they just pull on uh, both arms of this guy and they rip the flesh off of the arms, uh, leaving, uh, you know, uh, leaving just uh, like skeleton there as well. Then the kaiju flails in pain for a second. And then Hanuman uses his wind power to create a vortex around the kaiju, pulling off the rest of its flesh, leaving only a skeleton, which then is like sort of stands like a uh, kind of like a marionette for a mm-hmm. few seconds before just toppling into a pile of bones. It's very wily coyote. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Once you notice the physics, then they, then they apply. Yeah. 
Okay, so at this point, we have one kaiju left, and it's the big horned kaiju with the rainbow powers. The one that I believe is, it, it actually uh, was the one that was able to sort of freeze Hanuman inside of a sphere before the yeah. other ultras were able to come and save him. Yeah, the crystal laser sphere that, that gets him frozen, yeah. Yeah, he also has the power to block out the sun with smoke clouds. So he starts unleashing just untold destruction. So Hanuman and all seven ultras gang up on him and they just beat him down. <laughs> it's like, a, it's really bullying. Yeah, it's not pretty. At one point, the monster's trying to crawl away. Like they beat him down so much that he's just trying to crawl to safety. And the ultras grab him and Hanuman like, just beats him with a club. At one point, he, he rallies. He throws a, a boulder at the ultras, uh, but they use uh, Hanuman uses the club to bash it back to him, like they're playing baseball, and mm-hmm. then hits the uh, the kaiju in the head. And so finally, Hanuman creates a laser crescent with his staff, and then cuts the kaiju cleanly in half vertically, and then the kaiju explodes in a shower of sparks. I think this is the one uh, finishing move that I did mention previously: the yeah. the the cleaving in half. Yeah. So that that's the big that's the big violent finish. Tremendous power, all honor and glory to Hanuman. Yes. So uh, a little more detail about the closing here. In closing, Hanuman and the Ultras say their goodbyes. Then Hanuman says goodbye to the human characters. Then Hanuman flies off into the sunset. And then the film ends with the director narrating, thanking the viewer for having watched the film. And I say, you're welcome. All right. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and close this one out. Uh, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, you know, have, have you seen... Uh, any Ultraman films before? Had you seen Hanuman vs. Seven Ultraman before? Uh, have you seen the other Ultraman Hanuman team-up movie? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. I'd also love to hear from anyone who who, who actually saw these in Thailand or has a, you know more of a connection to Thai culture and can speak to, to some of those aspects of the film. Like, what is this film's uh, prevalence in Thai cinema? Um, how about some of those other titles we mentioned, uh, the Japanese or Thai films? Uh, did, are you familiar with any of those? Should, should we seek out the uh, uh, unbalanced horror theater? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure we could find it uh, if we did seek it out. It looks, uh, it looks like it's a little hard to get. Uh, but anyway, we'd love to hear from everyone about uh, any of these topics yeah definitely especially yeah please Thai listeners let us know your thoughts and if you would like to listen to other episodes of Weird House Cinema this comes out every Friday uh, in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed we're primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays but on Mondays we do a little listener mail on Wednesdays we do an artifact episode and on Fridays we cut loose and talk about some sort of weird or interesting film Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 